Okay, Father, I just pray right now that uh, you are just continuing to be with us as we receive uh, the word that you put on my heart. And I just pray that uh, this word is from you and that I speak the words that you give me. And any words that I speak that are of me would fall to the ground and people would forget it. So all they remember is a good message. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Uh, it looks like it's going to shape into a decent week. I'm very excited about that. I have the boys because they're on vacation. And so, man, the, the weather's been playing tricks on me, messing with my head. Oh, it's going to be sunny. Oh, it's rainy. Oh, it's going to be sunny. Oh, it's rainy. I think we're, huh? <laughs> yeah, then the snow. But I'm really hoping this week's going to have sun because woof, I'm throwing them outside and locking the door. So, oh man, this is the uh, third and final uh, installment of the God of Boundaries sermon series. Uh, did, was there a cheer? People are like, yay, it's over. <laughs> It's a joke. Um, I just want to kind of recap. We talked about that God gives us a measure of faith that says that in Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. We talked about that word measure. It's metron, and it literally means an allotted capacity, allotted space, a measure, and we also can use it, and it can also mean the sphere of influence that we have. So God gives us each of a measure of faith, of grace, a, a uh, boundary in our lives. And he does this for very specific reasons, and we, we talked about he does this to provide us direction, that we're, when we are in the boundaries he's given us, that he, it gives us direction. The Bible says that he's prepared us and he's prepared good works for us to do. He's predestined good works for us to do. So when we are in the will of God, when we're in our measure, there are good works, there are things that he's calling us to do. So when we're in it, we get direction. We talked about that when we're in the will of God and we're in our measure is actually the safest place to be. Again, he predestined those things for us to do, but he also does this thing where when we are in the will of God, he never takes us into a battle that we aren't to win. When we're in the will of God, he never puts us in a situation where we aren't supposed to overcome. So the best place, the most protected place to be is in our measure because when we're in our measure, God is taking care of it. And we have the faith and the trust that God is taking care of it. When we're outside of our measure is when we become susceptible. And the common thing I see with Christians outside their measure is they begin to make idols of things that aren't God. And some of it can be really good. One of the most um, seductive pitfalls Christians fall into is we make idols of the things of God instead of worshiping God. So it can be easy, but that just happens because we typically stepped out of our measure of faith. We're not operating in the capacity he's given us. We're operating in our own capacity. We also talked about uh, when we're in the measure of God, there's an energizing factor in the measure of God. And to energize means to give vitality or enthusiasm to. So I talked about it'll go faster in the measure of God than outside the measure of God. It'll go faster in the measure of God than outside the measure of God. When we're in the measure of God, 
we are reducing the time and waste because we, we're not taking detours, we're not having to backtrack because we're in the will. So, and then it also builds faith. Like I said, he predestines good works and he predestines victories for us. And when we are in the will of God, we see him working in us and through us and that builds our faith. So today I want to talk about, I think, probably the most important part. I want to talk about inhabiting our measure of faith. You see, when we're in the measure, we get victory. But the Lord told me there's something beyond victory. It's inhabitation. One of the examples that I've been looking at and reading through and, and, and pulling from is God dealing with the children of Israel, giving them their promised land. And what I was finding there is there's a difference between victory and inhabiting the land. In Deuteronomy 11.31, this is what God is telling them. For you are about to cross the Jordan to go in and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall possess it and live in it. Other verses go, you shall possess it and inhabit it. So God's plan was always go in, take the land, but not just take it, not just own it, not just have possession of it, but to inhabit it. You see, when, when God took the Israelites into the desert, he took them into the desert. <laughs> I was reading this, and I was like, good Lord. Um, <laughs> like, good Lord, <laughs> but bad people. <laughs> uh, I, I was telling Alyssa, I get, read your Bible, church. Read your Bible. Because, man, <laughs> there are so much teachings out there that are just rubbish. They're just rubbish. And if you read your Bible, you sit there and go, that doesn't make sense. And, you know, I'm researching, I'm studying the Israelites in the promised land. You know how much rubbish I had to go through? And I was sharing with Alyssa. It was, like, frustrating me. I remember I was reading an article, and this person was like, the, 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 the wilderness, the 40 years of wandering is there. God does that to build your character. God does that as an incubation chamber to, build, to take you into your destiny. And I was like, that's a load of nonsense. Read your Bible. Nobody was getting their character built. Nobody was getting incubated in their destiny. They died in the desert. Why would you teach that? No, the de you don't want to be in the wilderness wandering for 40 years. That's not God's plan. But boy, do they deserve it. <laughs> and we talked about it's the quickest route from Egypt to the promised land is 11 days. Now, God didn't take them the quickest route because he said, if I take them the quickest route, they'll go through the land of the Philistines and they'll know war and they will turn back and want to go to Egypt if they meet that resistance. Why did he say that? 
Why did he think that? Well, he's God. He knows that. But do you know what the Israelites, the Israelites did? The first thing that they did when they got saved, when literally God said, I'm going to come in and I'm going to send the plagues. I'm going to make Pharaoh so fed up with you guys, he's going to pay you to leave. He's going to pay you to leave. You are going to leave with the plunder of the nation that imprisoned you and had you in captivity for 400 years. He said that to Abraham. He said, you will know peace. You will die in peace, but your descendants will be in captivity for 400 years, but I will deliver them with the plunder of the land. So God is true to his word. He takes them miraculously. Forget the plagues. He takes them through the Red Sea on dry land. He closes the Red Sea behind them. They're safe. What is the first thing they do? They complain. God sent us out of Egypt to have us starve. Like, come on, guys. You guys, I'm telling you, when God takes you into your promised land, you need to be careful that you don't let the comforts that you're used to make you want to go back into slavery. Because that's what they did. They complained. He said, it, it, it was better for us in Egypt. Let's go back because I'm hungry. Come on. How much, how often do we do that? God says, here is your promised land. Let me take you there. And we go, yeah. And we go and we start getting uncomfortable. And we go, you know what? I'd rather be back in captivity because at least I was fed. That's a little bit of an aside, but man. So they're being led by the cloud. They're being led by the pillar of fire. They're getting food every day except for one. They're getting water from the rock, Right? They're being taken care of, protected, and guided the whole way. They get to the edge of the promised land, and God says, send spies from every tribe. Send leaders from every tribe to go and spy out the land. Why did he do that? My theory is he understood his people. He understood that they were still slaves in their mind. And he said, here's what I need. I need leaders. Who, are, who know my promises, who know what I'm doing, and I need them to go out and I need them to verify that I am true to my word. Because he told Abraham, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. And so the spies go into the land. And they, what report do they bring back? Yes, this land is flowing with milk and honey. Look at these grapes. It took two of us to carry them here. It's good land. See, that's half the report God wanted. Because I think God wanted them to go and see and bring back a report of faith to fill their hearts with courage. But 10 of them, despite being leaders, 10 of them went and they came back and they said, yeah, the land is everything God promised, but there's giants there. There's fortified cities there. We can't possibly do this. 
we can't possibly take this. And instead of filling the Israelites' hearts with courage and faith, the Bible says it filled them with fear. Some translations say they melted the heart of the people with fear. That's why God was like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm wiping you out. And Moses had to go, no, 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 no. That's not a good look, God. You don't rescue all of these people just to destroy them. And God says, you're right, you're right, but here's what I'm going to do. 40 and older, except for Caleb and Joshua, who were two of the spies who believed God and came back with a good report, except for Caleb and Joshua, anybody 40 and over, you need to die. You don't get the promised land. And that's the wandering in the desert. That's the punishment. Now, I told Alyssa, I said, how many of us do this? Here's their response. Oh, no, 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 we'll go take the land. We'll go take the land. And they raised up a group and they marched into the land and they got wiped out. And I said, how many of us do that? We make a mistake and we don't repent. We don't apologize. We don't show sorrow over our decision. We just try and do the thing that we were supposed to do originally. My kids do it all the time. This morning, my youngest wanted to bring two cars into the church. And I said, you can bring one car into the church. And he threw a big fit. So he brought no cars into the church. And when he realized no cars, he immediately goes, no, 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 no. I'll, get a, I'll pick a car. I'll pick a car. No. Now, if he had said, I'm sorry for throwing a fit, I'm sorry for not listening, I probably would have had more grace. And I think God would have had more grace. I don't think the 40 years would have been 40 years if they could have snapped out of their slavery mindset into the child, a children mindset, and went to their father and apologized. But how many of us do that? <laughs> so we wait. We wait 40 years. Finally, Moses and the last ones pass, and it's time to go into the promised land. It's time to possess it. It's time to march into the boundary God has marked for you, your promised land. Do you know how long it took them to conquer the promised land? Do you know how long? Seven years of war going from city to city. There were 31 fortified cities. City to city, conquering the cities. Seven years. And then, then the important part, then they had to inhabit the land. It's not just enough to get the victory. Let me put it to you this way. Victories are amazing, and victories are awesome, and victories are for you. But when you turn your victory into a habitation, when you turn your victory into a stronghold of faith, that's for everybody else. Victory is for you. Habitation is for others. When I get a victory, I have faith. When I build that and in, in, inhabit that victory, build it into a stronghold of faith, then I have faith for other people. And I can impart my faith to other people. I can say to somebody, I've been there. I've seen God move. I believe it. Let me give you some faith. Let me pray for you and believe it with you. I can join my faith with other people. Habitation is the next step. It's not always the immediate step. 
they went into the promised land and they conquered it in seven years. And it says, after seven years, the land knew peace. And that's when Joshua got together and he divided the land and he allocated it to the tribes. And what were the tribes called to do? Go and inhabit the land I'm allocating to you. So we got the victory. Now we know peace. And now it's time to go and live in it. Make it yours. And let's go back to Caleb, one of my heroes. The man who waited 45 years for his inheritance. He actually had to go back and win a couple more victories. You see, they went through and they killed the kings and they sometimes destroyed the city, sometimes didn't. But they won possession, but then he had to come back and he actually had to reclaim it to to inhabit it. So when the land knew peace and he said, okay, Joshua, remember Moses promised me this land. And Joshua said, okay, we'll give you that land. We'll give you and your family that land. Caleb went and had to reconquer it and refight so that he could inhabit it. So it doesn't always happen immediately, but it's the next step after victory. Sometimes God will have you win a victory and move you on. I was telling Alyssa, there are victories I won when we were dating that I didn't dwell in until we got married. There's things God did in me and ways that he healed me and made me a better person and a better husband before I was a husband. I didn't actually start living in those victories until I married Alyssa. So there's times he'll give you a victory, but he isn't calling you to inhabit it yet, but it's going to come because he doesn't give us victories and then say, now run away. (laughs) He gives us victories. He says, eventually, you're supposed to live in this. It's supposed to be reality. It's supposed to be permanent. And we'd make it permanent by inhabiting it. It's like renting versus owning. Let's be honest. You don't care about it as much if you're renting it. If you know that eventually it won't be yours. There's just some party that says, I'm not going to put that much investment in whatever it is. It could be a tool you're renting. It could be a a place you're living, which is crazy. Because I know sometimes you're living there, so you're like, I'm going to take care of it. There's that party going, this isn't mine. So I'll make it livable, but there's only a certain point I'm going to invest in it because it won't be, it's not mine. I don't own it. Versus ownership. When you own something, you take care of it. If you own a home, you, you continue to make it livable. You might even be fantasizing and thinking about improvements. I don't look at my house without going, oh, I would love to do this. I need to fix that. That needs to get painted. I'd love to improve this. Man, I was fantasizing the other day about gutting the electronics because our original home, is 1950s electronics. No grounding. And I'm like, oh, I would love to tear this. I'd love for something to happen where I have to tear it all up and put modern wiring into place. Because I don't want to do it just to do it because that's expensive. We got it. <laughs> Alyssa sometimes goes, man, I just wish our, uh, we, she, she wants something to be done. She goes, man, I just wish some disaster happened so that the insurance would pay for it. Because I remember we got, uh, when we bought the house, the floors were hardwood, white oak, and they looked it. <laughs> and they looked like they'd been around for a long time. And I'm like, one day we're going to have to pay to refinish this. Well, instead, our, our, our uh, kitchen flooded and damaged some of the floors. And because it's one run on the whole floor, 
when they replaced it, they had to replace that piece, and then they had to refinish the whole thing. So we got like a basically a brand new floor out of it. So Alyssa's like, ah, oh, that'd be nice if that could happen again. <laughs> so. <laughs> but owning a victory is inhabiting it. It's not just going, thank you for doing that for me, God, but it's going, how do I claim this? How do I live in it? How do I build it up into a stronghold? I think of, I think of when the Israelites reclaimed Jerusalem after exile with Nehemiah and Ezra. You actually had some Jews living in Jerusalem still. When, when um, Ezra came, he found Jews living there. But they didn't own it. They were in it, but they didn't inhabit it. And it wasn't until he came and he started restoring back the ways of God. And it wasn't until Nehemiah came, so Ezra came back, restored the ways of God, and started to rebuild the temple. It's very interesting. Ezra started to rebuild the temple, and there was resistance, but it was like a, 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 a letter-writing campaign. Some, some people in the neighborhood land said, oh, they're starting to rebuild. We're not so sure about this. And they wrote letters to the king and said, hey, have you heard about the history of this city? Might not want to let them rebuild. And the king was like, oh, yeah, they, they've revolted several times. Let's stop this. I think that's interesting. Now, uh, the king died. A new king came along, got reminded of the promise of another king because it took over three kings. And they started rebuilding again. But I, what I find interesting is when Nehemiah came, Nehemiah came and said, okay, the temple's getting rebuilt. We're living in there. We're restoring the ways back to God. But we need to rebuild the walls. He was smart. He realized we can't inhabit this if we can't protect ourselves. We need to rebuild the walls. And I think it's interesting. When they started to rebuild the walls is when they were met with physical resistance. And when you had to have half the men rebuilding the walls and the other half guarding the men rebuilding the walls. You see, the enemy sometimes is content to let us have our victory. And he only gets worried when we start inhabiting. Because our victory is for us. But when we inhabit our victory, we turn it into a stronghold, we build the walls up, and we live in it, that's when it becomes something for other people. And that becomes even more threatening. And that's when you'll find resistance. Something's interesting that I didn't even... Read your Bible, guys. It's really great. In researching this, what I find so interesting is they got the, they, Joshua comes and conquers the promised land, but they don't get all of it, even after seven years. You know, you know what's interesting? They fight the king of Jerusalem, and they defeat him, but they don't claim Jerusalem. Do you know when they claim Jerusalem? Does anyone know? King David. King David claims Jerusalem, inhabits it, and makes it the seat of the kingdom. That's 100 years later, or more. I think that's 100. So sometimes the victory is great, but it takes time to claim and live and inhabit it. So what does it mean to inhabit? Back then it was really simple. 
Because back then, when we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about a physical place, and we're talking about land, and we're talking about cities, and we actually have physical walls. The thing that happens through the new covenant is we stop talking about a physical land, we stop talking about a physical nation, and we start talking about a spiritual kingdom. And we start talking about, we stop talking about the Israelites, and we start talking about the children of God, which include us, amen? So what does it mean for us nowadays to get victories and inhabit cities and rebuild walls? And what does it mean to live in our Metron now? Well, to inhabit means to dwell. To plant. To put your roots down. There's a concept of community when it says inhabit. It's not just an individual thing. Remember, when it was time to inhabit, it wasn't an individual doing it. It was families and tribes. So when it actually is time to inhabit your measure of faith, it's not just for you. And you can't fully inhabit your measure of faith disconnected from community. I say this, God is amazing. He's absolutely amazing. He is completely about you. You are his favorite. It is a completely individual relationship you have with God that can only fully be expressed inside community. It's amazing. He could be so individualistic and so community-minded at the same time. It's one of those seemingly oxymorons of God. I can't go off and be a hermit and fully realize my relationship with God because God builds it so that we need each other. Because you hold a piece of God that I don't hold. And I only experience that piece of God through relationship with you. That's what community is. That's what the family of God is. One body, many parts. And the body only functions when it's joined together, working together in a common purpose of loving God. So when we say inhabit, there's this understanding of time, of living, and of being in community with each other. I think about it this way. John 15, 4 says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. How do I inhabit my measure of faith? I abide in the vine. I abide in Jesus. That's what we talked about. That, how do I learn more about my measure of faith? I abide in the vine. And what does abiding in the vine do? Abiding in the vine means that I will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. I will be like a tree. When I abide in the vine, when I abide in Jesus, I'm like a tree Planted by the water. Some verses say firmly rooted by a stream. My leaves won't wither. I will yield my fruit in my season. Some verses say in season and out. And can I give you guys a clue about fruit? The fruit isn't for the tree. Fruit isn't for the tree. I don't produce fruit for myself, and I don't produce fruit from myself. 
I produce fruit through Jesus for everybody around me. You see, I'm a tree and I produce fruit and people come by and they pick my fruit and they enjoy my fruit. And you know the amazing thing? There's the ability to reproduce in the fruit. So what happens is when I'm practicing the fruit of the Spirit with you, it's not for me. How many of you guys have practiced fruits of the Spirit? How many of you guys enjoyed practicing the fruits of the Spirit? See, you got all weird. I'm just going to see only three people, by the way, everybody listening, only like three people raise their hand because everyone else understands. It's not easy being patient. It's not easy being kind. When I find God reminding me to be patient, he's not saying be patient. It'll be good for you. (laughs) He's saying be patient. It'll be a blessing to your children. It'll be a blessing to your wife. It'll be a blessing to your church. (laughs) Because it's not for me. It's for you. But the amazing thing that happens spiritually, because fruit has the ability to reproduce itself. With Jesus, when I am patient with Alyssa, she receives the fruit, and in it, through Jesus, she has the ability to produce patience for other people. Fruit isn't for the tree. It's for the community. So to each of us is given a measure of faith. But it's not so that I can be all cool and awesome. Look at my measure of faith. Look at how God's grown it. Look how God's unit used it. Look, look how I look at what I can do. That's not what it's about. It's look at the measure of faith God give, gave me. Look at how I'm using it to serve the body, to serve the family, to worship God. Look how I'm using it to bless. Because ultimately, when I inhabit, I'm not just inhabiting for me. I'm inhabiting for other people. What I plant, not only I enjoy. The community enjoys it. Not only does the community enjoy it, but we're talking about generations. When I dwell in a place, when I own a place, it's not so I own it. It's so that eventually I pass it on. That's the whole point. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a God of generations. The promised land was a promise given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then finally Moses. And you know what? Through Moses, finally Joshua, before they actually finally started taking it. It didn't even get completed till hundreds of years later with King David when you finally got the full kingdom that God promised. That's why it's called Israel's golden age under David. That was the largest and most prosperous prosperous and most protected Israel was. So here's a promise that goes all the way through. But it begins with a promise. It begins with a definition. Here is the land I'm giving you. Here is the measure I'm giving you. And then you go in and you begin to explore it and you begin to claim victories. But then you're supposed to inhabit. You're supposed to own, cultivate, to till, to plant. So that one day when you're gone, you give an inheritance to your children. And again, our kingdom is spiritual. Our promised land is spiritual. It's not physical. So to dwell in it is to increase my relationship with God and others. I'll say that again. To dwell in my promised land is to increase my relationship with God and others. And the way I 
people benefit from that is because when I'm dwelling in God, I become a tree and I produce fruit in season and out. And people come and they take it. And they reproduce it through Jesus. And we do that with each other. And we do that with our children. You see, I look at my kids and I look at them and I go, my desire is that spiritually speaking, physically too, but spiritually speaking, they won't have to rewalk the path I walked. That they will use me and I will carry them to the end of my line and they begin walking. Because I want to inhabit and I want to dwell in my measure of faith. And when I do that, at the end of my days, I get to tell my children, here's your inheritance. You can now go and be greater. You can now go and be deeper with God than I was because I walked this path. And I'm not going to force you to do it. I'm going to put you on my shoulders. I'm going to bring you to the end with my end, your beginning. And that's what we should feel for everybody. Amen. All right, Father, I just thank you so much. I thank you so much that you are so amazing. You are so wonderful to us. Thank you that you have a plan and you've given us each a measure. And I just pray again, Father, that as we dwell in the in the vine, as we abide with you, that you would define our land, that you would give us victories, and that you would show us how to inhabit and dwell in the land you give us, so that we would be a blessing to those around us, we'd be a blessing to the current generation and the generation to come. And Father, I thank you for all the ways you're preparing us, all the ways that you're guiding us, and I just ask for more deeply that we aren't obsessed with more, 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 further, 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 wider, 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 but that we get obsessed with deeper, deeper, deeper. Father, I'll take an inch if it's a mile deep. I'll take that any day. So I just thank you again. You are so good to us. You are so faithful to us. And all that you ask is we we look at you. And every time we turn away, that we just turn back. I thank you, Father. I thank you that there's no condemnation in Jesus. I thank you that we come boldly before your throne because of what you've done for us. And I just pray that we take that invitation today and moving forward. That we are not timid mice, but we're confident children and a father that loves us and a brother that loves us and in a comforter that loves us. So, Father, I just, I just ask if there's any doubts in our hearts, if there's any questions in our hearts that you would meet us, that you would show us the depth of your love for us. The desire for your for a relationship with us. And Father, break any selfishness. Break any love of comfort over love of our brothers and sisters. Teach us that what you give us is for everyone else. And we might get a secondary benefit, but it's for everyone else. And show us that we have 
things of value that everyone wants. In Jesus' name, amen.